This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Ed, you are returned from Paris. That is right. A week ago, I dashed from here to the Eurostar to go to the Franco-British clock, the annual French-British political cultural meeting. And then on the way back, I didn't get the Eurostar straight back. I popped with a couple of permanent secretaries into the brasserie opposite the Gardenor called Terminus Noor. And I've got to say, it's absolutely brilliant. You'd think the restaurant right by the station wouldn't be so good. It was superb. I had Du's escargot. Really, really good, really garlicky snails. Fabulous. So you, you've, you've not been fasting this week, unlike our Prime Minister. Look, I've tried every fasting going. One day, two day, between you know, 10 at night and... 36 mid- hours on a Monday, like Rishi Sunak? None of them work. It's all a lie. The reason Rishi Sunak is thin is because he's thin. Right. It's not because he fasts. And the reason fasting doesn't work for me is because I'm not thin. <laughs> and that is just like a truth. As my mum said, Ed, you're heavy boned. And that's just the way it is. So there we so are. You're blaming your genetics. Eh? Anyway, look, talking about our week, George, another week, another job. The Financial Times reports you're joining the crypto group Coinbase, big American global exchange. You're going to be on the advisory council. We were talking about crypto a couple of weeks ago, and I was a bit sceptical about crypto, whether it was a wise investment. And I thought, you know, George is rather more positive about crypto than I expected. And is this why? Well, I've always been interested in the potential change it's going to bring to the way finance operates in the world. And it doesn't mean, you know, there are lots of things that bad things that happen with crypto, but there's also a lot of innovation. And I thought it wouldn't be a bad thing to find out about the future of money, Ed. I mean, not enough jobs. And here's another one. Well, it's a new new year, new job. It's not not my main job. (laughs) Anyway, talking talking about one of my jobs, this podcast, we should get on with it. Today, we're going to talk, first of all, about the Rachel Reeves announcement that Labour will not be returning to a bank bonus cap. And then more generally, that is one example, the dropping of the bonus tax, where Britain is using its freedom outside the European Union to change things. And we're going to ask, is that happening in the way people thought it might the Brexiteers thought it might back in 2016. And this is the week, of course, when we celebrate, according to the email I got from the Conservative Party, Brexit. Happy Brexit Day was the message they sent me, which I deleted. The other thing we're <laughs> going to talk about this week is the government's decision to ban vaping for young people and particularly disposable vapes and indeed banning cigarette smoking altogether for children as they grow up and so that in the end in this country, cigarette smoking will be illegal. You know, is this the nanny state, as people like Liz Truss have complained, or is this pretty sensible interventions? What does it say about Rishi Sunak's relationship with the libertarian wing of the Tory party? And then third, we're going to talk about France and the sense of angst and worry in French politics with the European elections coming up this summer, the National Front, prospect of Marine Le Pen taking over from Emmanuel Macron when he steps down as president in a couple of years and how France is facing up to what could be a very turbulent period. First of all, though, it's Labour's business conference today. I don't know, they seem to have a business conference every week. Keir Starmer speaking, Rachel Reeves, and um, sold out in a few hours, they say, people paying a lot of money from business to go and be part of the business discussion. We've talked in the past about why it's important for the opposition to show they're engaging with business. And that's quite a big change from the Corbyn era. But another big change from the Corbyn era is Rachel Reeves saying that she won't be restoring 
the bank bonus cap, which was introduced, I think, back in 2014 by the EU, quite controversial at the time. And here's what Rachel Reeves has said about what Labour's going to do. The cap on bank bonuses was brought in in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And that was the right thing to do to rebuild the public finances. But that has gone now and we don't have any intention of bringing that back. Well, you know what? They often say that bankers are ruthless in the pursuit of money and this European cap on bonuses was introduced to curb that pursuit of cash. What you're seeing here is a ruthless pursuit of power. I mean, this is the Labour Party doing everything and anything necessary to clear the decks to try and win a general election. And part of that is wooing the City of London and wooing more broadly the business community because the biggest question I would say that a Labour opposition always has to answer is, can it be trusted with your money? Can it be trusted with the economy? Can it be trusted with business? And Rachel Reeves and her team, Keir Starmer, today at this conference, they are bending over backwards to say, yes, 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 we love business, we embrace business, business is going to be a partner in a Labour government. And I have to say, the business community are lapping it up. They are. It's interesting. She doesn't want there to be business endorsements for the Conservatives the next election. She's very keen, as is Keir Starmer, to have business endorsements for Labour if they can get them. We've had the boss of Iceland, Richard Walker, defecting to Labour, having failed a few times to be selected as a Conservative candidate. There's a report out today for this conference by Ian Anderson, who's a city PR guy on government business relations, a report he's done for Labour. He was a Conservative not long ago, so there's another defector. I guess she's decided that this was um, potentially an obstacle. I think she had to do it. I mean, it's not that popular. Uh, I was quite surprised that she did it, that she thought it was necessary. I think she could be on the fence on that one rather than being declaratory in this way. But as you say, she thinks it's necessary. Well, I think, you know, sometimes in politics, you have to make a distinction between what's popular and what's credible and what builds credibility over a period of time. So if you say, should bankers receive uncapped bonuses, most people in the country are going to go, no, of course not. And when the EU introduced this in 2014, I voted against it in the European Council as the Chancellor and made a huge song and dance about trying to stop it. We took the European Union to court and we lost. And it was definitely a setback for the UK, particularly in an area where we thought the European Union should listen to us because most of the people affected were going to be working in Britain because of the City of London. But it was definitely unpopular at the time. I remember Ed Miliband, you said it's a break from the Corbyn era. It's actually a break from the period when you were in opposition because Ed Miliband raised it at Prime Minister's Questions against David Cameron. And I remember it being a quite uncomfortable session for us. So it's quite a departure. The one thing I would point out is she's not promising to reverse the decision of the EU. She's just promising to stick with what the Tories have done. This is something that Rishi Sunak has already announced, or Jeremy Hunt has already announced. So in a way, she's saying Labour's not going to reimpose a cap on bankers' bonuses. But it's, it's quite a departure even from a year ago when Kwasi Kwarteng announced this in the kind of mini budget in the House of Commons. And was, a, and was lampooned for it. It was lampooned. I mean, it's actually worth hearing because this, this isn't, we're not talking about years ago. This is just a year ago or thereabouts. All the bonus cap did was to push up the basic salaries of bankers or drive activity outside Europe. It never capped. It never capped total remuneration. So as a consequence of this, Mr Speaker, we are going to get rid of it. 
I mean, I feel a bit sorry for all those Labour MPs who were cheering, yeah. cheering Quateng and now have to cheer Reeves. But, you know, that needs must as you approach an election. I think, you know, there's a... It's an interesting point here. Is this a Brexit bonus? I absolutely hate this phrase because, you know, frankly, I'm not a big fan of Brexit, if you didn't already know that. But it is true that by being outside the EU, we have been able to get rid of this restriction that affects one of our most important industries, financial services. And it does have a difference at the margin. I said the bankers got around it, but certainly pay restrictions in countries like Amsterdam is one of the reasons why a lot of business hasn't left the city of London. So this is something we're only able to do outside the EU. But I have to say, it's pretty much the only example. It's certainly the most obvious and well-known example when I guess we were promised by the Brexiteers that there will be many, many examples of Britain you know, reducing European red tape, getting out of European rules, becoming more competitive. They talked about, didn't they, building a Singapore on the Thames, i.e. a kind of lightly regulated, low-tax, highly competitive economy, which, in fact, it's a bit of a parody because that's not what Singapore is really like. But nevertheless, that's what we promised. And all we've got at the end of it is a political consensus that bankers should be paid more. Well, you can absolutely be sure that Rachel Reeves is not going to be labelling her decision not to restore the bank bonus tax as a Brexit dividend. That's not going to be her motivation. I mean, just one second more on that. I think I would say she won't think that either when it comes to financial regulation or executive pay, this is the end of the story. Labour has to be in that territory because nobody thinks that this is a stable equilibrium, a fair equilibrium for the long term. I guess the thing I worry about, Rachel, well, do you, sorry, What do you mean by that, a fair equilibrium? Well, do we think that public concern about huge pay rises at the top, especially for in companies which have big public contracts and haven't been doing that well, that that is fair and um, that you won't have political pressure in the future on those issues? I'm not sure that... Do you um, not subscribe to the Peter Mandelson view that Labour should be intensely relaxed about people being filthy rich? Well, he said intensely relaxed about people who are filthy rich if they pay their taxes. And I think that is the question, because I think the thing which worries me is the extent to which Rachel is choosing on tax to box herself in quite a lot. She doesn't want to raise taxes on working people. She doesn't want to raise wealth taxes. She's now not going to have a bank bonus cap. And she's also announced this morning at the Labour Business Conference, there'll be no rise in corporation tax either. I mean, if the fiscal inheritance turns out to be tougher, if the pressures on public services are as people expect, this is going to be a very, very difficult task for her. And she's absolutely removing room for manoeuvre. Yeah, but you can only give a budget if you've won an election. And absolutely key for Labour is to be trusted on the economy, which they were not in the last couple of general elections. That's true. But back in 1997, we made a commitment not to raise the top rate of income tax or the basic rate of income tax. But we also said we weren't going to go through the 240 other tax reliefs, rates and allowances and give commitments on all of those. And we certainly didn't make a commitment on the tax burden because we didn't know what the inheritance was going to be. The more commitments you make on tax in opposition the harder it is to govern when you're there. And so, you know, she's definitely making her task more difficult. But winning over the business vote as she does so. I'm all in favour of cutting corporation taxes, you know, and I'm not, not much impressed that this government has increased corporation tax. One of the reasons I think Britain's become less attractive. But you're completely right. It does box in your options. And a shattered chance you've got to kind of get the, get the ball over the line without, um, 
giving so many commitments that if you become chancellor, there's very little you can do. Look, and as the head of the Office of Budget Responsibility, Richard Hughes said last week, the public spending plans for after the election aren't even a fiction because the government's not telling a credible story about how it's going to make 0.9% a year add up. But that won't be a fiction for a Labour government. It will be a reality. The health service, policing, defence, the courts, education. And that is the thing which concerns me. I do think you have to be thinking now about that reality and how you'll manage it. And I think in opposition, you have to do that. And I'm sure she is, but she's definitely making it tougher. Let's go back to your Brexit point, though. Do we think that people voted Brexit in 2016 fundamentally because they thought we were going to be Singapore on Thames and have a less regulated Britain? Well, I I think it was... I'm not sure they ever did. Look, it turned out to be a very effective alliance, albeit a temporary one, between a small number of people, mainly in London, sort of hedge fund managers and people who'd worked in conservative think tanks, whatever, who had this idea that Britain could leave the EU and get rid of all that EU red tape and bureaucracy. And they managed to hitch their wagon, which was hadn't been very popular, to a concern of a much larger group of people that globalisation was destroying their way of life or making their job insecure or or immigration was ruining their community or whatever it was. Or the borders were porous. Yeah, and that, you know, essentially the sort of left-behind communities. But of course, those left-behind communities did not want to be more exposed to globalisation. They didn't want less regulation. They wanted more. And the result after Brexit has been a massive growth in the size of the British state. You know, it's gone from being around 40% of national income to 45% of national income. The civil service has gone back to the scale it was in 2010 after the big reductions when I was chancellor. There's much more regulation. And this week, we are having new checks and costs on imports into the country. Remember, this was supposed to be a big advocate for free trade Brexit. We're actually having more controls on trade that are going to put the price of food up. And uh, that's coming in this week, and it's going to be introduced over the coming months. And, you know, when Andrea Leadsom, and, you know, Andrea Leadsom, I used to work in the Treasury, so I got plenty of respect for her, but I disagreed with her on Brexit. And I have to say, I did chuckle a bit when I heard her this week trying to explain that Brexit came at a price, which I don't remember her or her colleagues saying in 2016. So there's a huge new opportunity for the UK at the same time as continuing to trade, albeit with some friction, which is the price you pay for leaving the single market and for being a sovereign state again. So you know, there's there's a leading Brexiteer now saying that, of course, there's an economic cost to Brexit. There may have been a benefit in terms of Britain having its, as she would put it, her sovereignty back. But it now comes at an economic price. And the economic price is a very real one. It's going to increase the cost of food and it's going to add to inflation. And that is just one of numerous obstacles now to trade. Brexit was the biggest act of protectionism in modern British history, not an act of free trade. And you're also seeing the repercussions of that elsewhere, all those talk of free trade deals. Look, we've just heard that the Canadian free trade deal is not happening that's not a benefit we're foregoing. That's actually something that's going to cost us because British farmers and cheesemakers, for example, aren't going to be able to sell to Canada anymore. Yeah, but the reason it's not happening is because the British government know that British voters won't accept meat from Canada coming in with lower standards. And the same thing applies. You know, why can't we have a free trade agreement with America? That was also promised, a bilateral deal. The reason is because the advantage for Britain 
would be to open our financial services industry to American markets. The Americans are not interested in that. The advantage for the Americans would be to sell cheaper American food into the UK. The British government knows that British people, including people who voted Brexit, don't want cheaper American food with lower standards. So the idea that free trade agreements would be easy to negotiate, well, it turns out they're not because people don't want the deregulation. There may have been, you know, your Jacob Rees-Mogg or John Redwood who wanted a particular approach to deregulation in the financial services industry, but more widely in the economy, it's actually not what people thought they were voting for. If you go back to the great act of free trade in British history, which was the repeal of the Corn Laws, and the then Conservative government, although it did put them out of office for about 30 years afterwards, chose under Robert Peel to prioritise the price of food of the masses in the cities over the interests of the farmers. I feel some of these restrictions on imports, often under the kind of guise of, you know, food standards, but it's not like Canadians are eating like poisoned beef. You know, they look pretty healthy to me when I meet Canadians. You know, that in fact, you've got a government again siding with the producer interests on a lot of these trade deals, which is why they're not being struck because, in fact, wouldn't it be a better thing if we had the competition coming from cheaper North American food? Wouldn't it be, mean a lot of British families would be able to get more for less? But as Andrew Ledsom says, this is the price of Brexit. We are finally liberated from the common agricultural policy. And what we then have to put in place instead is a hugely expensive, complicated way of subsidising British farmers who are very upset about the free trade agreements struck with Australia and New Zealand because of the flow of cheap food from those places, which undermines our producers. And the last thing they want is the same thing happening from Canada and America. So, you know, it's a producer interest. It's expensive. As you say, the consumer pays, but the consumer is paying knowingly. I mean, if you had a vote, I think, as to whether people wanted lower food standards, I think they'd vote against it. Well, particularly if you put it like that. I, don't, I, I feel we should go back to the days when my fellow Remainer... Liz Truss was boasting of the virtues of exporting British agricultural products like pork to Beijing and, of course, cheese. In fact, we've, this whole item is really so that we could play this clip, let's isn't play it? it? Let's play it. At the moment, we import two-thirds of all of our apples. We import nine-tenths of all of our pears. We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. The audience isn't quite sure whether to clap that because they're not quite sure. Liz went on to be Prime Minister. She did. Now, a really interesting thing which I learned, I did a BBC programme on this a few years ago. The biggest port for the UK in terms of value of goods coming in and out is Heathrow. And one of the big goods we export from Heathrow is fish. High end goes in the holds of aeroplanes to um, you the, mean the, the passenger world. planes flying to New York? To New York and to Beijing. So oh. when you sit in a full passenger flight, oh. below you, 10% or something of the space under you is your luggage, and the other 90% is fish and crabs. And that goes to New York. So if you fly to New York and then go into a restaurant in that evening and have fresh salmon, it could have been salmon which flew over with you. But the reason why this market has exploded is because of the passenger flights, because that's actually the thing which drives it. So consumers from Beijing, tourists, want to come to Britain on holiday and to shop, and they fly back. And that means it's cheap to put the crabs and the salmon in the hold 
but it depends upon those flights. But they're not flying back with Gucci handbags, are but they? That is the point, because the interesting thing which has happened since Brexit is that we are now stopping international tourists from reclaiming their VAT. There's a big Daily Mail campaign about this, the tourist tax. This is something where once we left the European Union and we weren't part of an agreement where you had to offer these concessions, the British government has decided to increase VAT on international tourists. So it's actually um, used the Brexit discretion to do something which is now seen to be harming British business and retailers. And to, I think, to be fair, Rishi Sunak was chance at the time. Was he? The, yeah, the reason... They the Brexiteer Rishi Sunak. Brexit's voting Rishi Sunak. He did not maintain the EU's scheme, which was that you got VAT off if you bought a, like a Gucci handbag or a Chanel dress or whatever in London if you were a Chinese tourist or an American tourist. The reason was because once we left the EU, you'd have to give that VAT rebate to European citizens as well. You have to give it to French people, German people and so on. And it was going to be hugely expensive for the Treasury, a couple of billion pounds a year from memory. In fact, Kwasi Kwarteng then reversed it in that mini budget. And then Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have reimposed this higher VAT essentially on tourists buying things in Britain. And the argument is, therefore, they go and buy these things in Paris or Milan or whatever. But of course, here's another irony. We were told during the Brexit campaign that we'd have lower VAT if we left the EU because we'd have freedom to reduce our rates. And that was actually one of the most popular messages of the Brexit campaign. Was, they were going to reduce VAT on things like heating and the like. I mean, you can see the problem for Jeremy Hunt, for Rishi Sunak, because were you to do what the Daily Mail wants and reduce this tourist tax at a time when most people's budgets are under pressure, you'd have a very expensive tax cut, which mainly goes to rich Chinese, rich Americans, rich Arabs and Monsieur and Monsieur Arno, who owns all the shops. They uh, people who can <laughs> afford exactly people who can afford to come and buy luxury goods in London, then fly home. Yeah, but it's quite an ecosystem around. I mean, the argument is you know, there's a whole set of hotels, restaurants, you know, transport. The centre of London thrives on this business. All I'm saying is, and, you, and other all places, I'm saying is you wouldn't like Bista want Village, Edinburgh, other places as well. All I'm saying it's not an easy no. communication for any chancellor to say our priority for tax cuts is visiting wealthy Chinese. But the broader point is really interesting, isn't it? Because they haven't really taken advantage of the flexibility to reshape the whole VAT system. They could have had a wholly different system. For years, we were constrained. Now we're not. Almost nothing's happened. I think they've got rid of the tampon tax, but big radical reform, a huge amount of things you could do. I mean, none have been done so far when it comes to VAT. This is, of course, all in the week where we've had another Northern Ireland agreement post-Brexit. I mean, it remains one of the great mysteries how the unionist parties, the DUP, supported Brexit when it's probably done more for Irish unification than anything else in the last 100 years. And certainly increased the regulatory burden for the Massive, Irish economy. Uh, right. And we've got another agreement this week, you know, and credit to the government for kind of negotiating this because it's not easy, which is going to lead to a Sinn Féin first minister in Northern Ireland if you think back to when we were children, the idea that you'd have a Sinn Féin minister and first minister of Northern Ireland would have seemed absolutely extraordinary. When but, I was um, at university or just after, the BBC were banned from interviewing any Sinn Féin politician on the television because they were yeah. terrorist organisations. And, and now we're going to have the Sinn Féin it's first a minister. massive change, all done by politics. Politics can change things. Yes, and I think Brexit has accelerated these developments in Northern Ireland. But we are now, as a result, Part of the way that deal's done is that in order not to have a borders 
people would put it, in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, we've basically made a promise not to diverge very much from European regulation so that there's not also a border on the Irish border with the Republic. And it does seem to me we have ended up with the kind of worst of both worlds. You know, we're sticking with these EU rules because of things like the Northern Ireland situation and because there's no appetite for a big act of deregulation. And at the same time, there's a load more paperwork, checks and costs to make sure we're complying with all those rules, hence the new costs that are coming in on food imports from the EU. So we have got absolutely zero benefits from Brexit. You can make a trade case for Brexit. You can make an economic case for Brexit if you were to pursue a really decisive economic policy, which is we're going to be lower tax, lower regulation in the European continent. We're going to be hyper competitive. We don't mind if that shuts us out of some European business. We're going to strike these free trade deals with the United States and Canada because we're going to take in their beef and we're going to sell them their cheese and the like. And our but farmers we, can go by the wayside. That's OK. Yeah. And we have done none of that. Nope. You know, and uh, as a result, happy Brexit Day has come and gone. And we've marked it simply by £300 million more costs on British consumers for the food they eat. Look, in order to try and revive your um, spirits, we're going to talk after the break about what Rishi Sunak is doing to inspire Conservative members and voters in the nation with his bans on vaping and on smoking. And we're going to ask, is the nanny state popular? Do that in a moment. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. So the week started with the government announcing a ban on disposable vapes. And that was welcomed, I think, broadly speaking, by the opposition, but not by some elements of the Conservative Party who also object to this quite radical policy, which I actually very much support and advocated beforehand, which is a complete ban on smoking introduced over a long period of time, i.e. you say that smoking will never be legal for someone who becomes 18 in the next few years and will never be legal at any point in their life. Pretty radical measure, which was only ever previously announced in New Zealand, and New Zealand have just come off it. I'm a big fan of these uh, nanny state interventions on public health. I think they're very sensible. They always create a bit of noise when they're introduced, like the in the 1970s when there was uh, the introduction of the law that said you had to wear a seatbelt in a car, which massively reduced deaths in car accidents, to the new Labour announcement that uh, smoking in public places should be banned. They're always a bit controversial. You always get this nanny state argument, but the public health benefits are absolutely enormous. And I thought you were certainly pay- mocking a couple of weeks ago the Labour tells children to brush their teeth policy, because well, I thought you said that was a nanny state move. Well, that, that was uh, that was a supervised toothbrushing. I said it was literally exact- the nanny state. Yeah but, yeah, but this is exactly what that's about. To get kids to brush their teeth, make sure they do it. I wasn't actually... Teaching yeah, them I, I was, in order that they then don't have to have I'm, huge I'm, costs the dentist. I'm not against supervised toothbrushing in schools. It sounds like a pretty sensible idea, particularly when I discovered... Do you supervise toothbrushing? I certainly supervise toothbrushing every night. But I discovered that actually, as it happens, tooth decay is the number one cause of hospital admissions for children. But I only discovered that after we did our last podcast. So I completely see where they're coming from. As Kane said, when the facts change, 
you change your mind. <laughs> yes, well, facts have changed quite a lot for Labour over recent years. <laughs> but on this, this example, there are 5 million disposable vapes chucked away every week. So that's that's a huge rubbish problem for a start. And then there's an argument that, you know, it does. it's not nearly as bad as smoking. You don't have tobacco in these disposable vapes. Uh, so it's not as bad for your health. But there are lots of unknown potential problems with it going forward because there is nicotine, it can create addiction and, and so on. I think the, kind of the, the one danger here is you don't want to drive people back to smoking. And there'll, of course, be an enforcement problem, but there's an enforcement problem anyway. Like something like, I remember as Chancellor, one in five cigarettes is illegal in this country, you know, smuggled in. So we already have an enforcement problem. So I, I think this is a good move by the government and it's sort of true to Rishi Sunak. You know, this was one of his big conference pledges when he banned smoking. And it's the kind of thing he wants to do as prime minister. And I'm all for, you know, as that famous West Wing episode many years ago said, let, let Rishi be Rishi. I totally agree on the vaping move. My dad is a, um, in his mid-80s now, a biologist and knows a lot about these things. That's always been worrying that deciding to put an unknown, an untested substance into people's lungs is potentially dangerous. And the fact that it's better than smoking and nicotine doesn't make it okay. And we don't really know what the evidence is. We were talking, though, um, last time about the fact that the health secretary, Victoria Atkins, has not been such a big public figure. And then once again... Well, you didn't know who she was. I I didn't. No, I didn't. (laughs) Well, I mean, of course I I do, Victoria. It's just that uh, I didn't think she had been put as front and centre as she should have been. And then once again, the Prime Minister chooses personally to lead this policy announcement, as he did on the smoking ban as well. Is the presidential approach to let Sunak be Sunak on these nanny state measures, as they are seen by some, but public health measures by other, is this good politics for the Conservative Party? I get the feeling that there's rather a lot of Conservatives who look at this and think, he's supposed to be a Conservative. What's going on? Well, we've got to get him back to his eating habits, because there's been quite a lot of lampooning of this revelation that he fasts, that he doesn't eat anything on a Monday, or in fact, for longer than a Monday, for 36 hours, apart from the odd uh, cheeky almond and hazelnut or whatever he has along the way. Uh, this, was, this is what he said when he was asked on this morning about it. I wish I was as disciplined as has been reported, first, first thing to say. <laughs> so, like all of us, I start the week with the best of intentions, and then you, you, know, you hit contact with reality at some point. Now, I try on a Monday after an indulgent weekend to try and have a day of Fasting and pull back. Right. Yeah, it's not totally nothing, but largely nothing. Yes. And then pick Just, it back up. Do you have the odd nut? I do have the odd nut, exactly, that kind of thing. I yeah. knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I don't exercise as much as I used to because of the job. Yeah. So that is the so you thing. you like a little reset. So the little reset at the beginning yeah. of the week, little detox. Well, quite a lot of information there. Thank you, uh, Prime Minister. There's been some criticism in Tory circles. This is another weird thing about our Prime Minister. You know, he's already this sort of tech bro from California. He's got a house in Los Angeles. Now it turns out he doesn't eat anything. And you've had some Tory MP saying, you know, what about the, you know, the right of every teenage English girl to have a vape outside the chippy on a Friday night? You know, is he is he kind of curbing our fundamental freedoms? I would say he's being truer to, you know, he should just be confident in who he is, which I, I'm sure he is when you meet him. But, you know, stop pretending he's the guy who wants to have a full English in the canteen at the steelworks in Rotherham. Now, he is a highly disciplined, intelligent hardworking, abstemious individual who doesn't drink, doesn't eat very much. Fasts. Fasts. You know, likes his coffee 
tepid and an expensive coffee machine, likes to wear some nice shoes. And that is, and, and you know, be, be who he is and say, by the way, as a result of all that, I'm able to do this job well as prime minister. I'm not reaching for the red wine at nine o'clock at night, unlike my predecessor, reading my material. I turn up fresh for every meeting and I understand the future. And I also understand what's going to make the nation healthy. Just be, be himself, be confident in who he is rather than he's not like man of the people. He's the guy, he's the smart guy with a Californian instinct for making the world better and brighter. Yeah, it's interesting because I think if you look at past prime ministers, Conservative and Labour, although I think this is particularly an issue for Labour, when you're doing these sort of public health nanny state type things, normally they're less enthusiastic and tech bro Californian about it and they're more kind of more reluctant more pained. Boris Johnson in the pandemic was sort of apologising for the fact that he was having to ask people to change their behaviour. I think Keir Starmer was always very careful not to get too ahead of what the government was saying. He was always worried that if you had a Labour politician out there saying, it's good for you, you should behave in this way, that people recoiled from that, that, you know, the Labour people are the kind of people who like to tell you what to do and, and people kind of react against that. There's this great John Reed quote, which our team here at the podcast has dug up, which I have to say is brilliant. It's, so he said that John Reed, you know, the former Labour Health Secretary, and he said this in 2004. He said, cutting smoking is an obsession of the learned middle classes and that for council estate single mothers, the only enjoyment sometimes they have is to enjoy a cigarette. Well, look, he turned out to be wrong about that because the smoking ban was endorsed much more widely than anybody expected. I think really interestingly, back in that time, children in schools, I remember visiting primary schools, and you'd put your, ask kids to put their hand up if you're in favour of the smoking ban. We're talking about like 2005, six. Every child would put their hands up and you'd say, why? And a child would say, because I want my mum and dad to live longer and I want them to stop smoking. And I think the cultural change was, was bigger and faster than we expected. But lots of people were worried in the way John Reid was worried, maybe not quite as um, crudely as the way he, he put it. Tony Blair, I think, deliberately wanted to be dragged to this policy. He was worried, as I say, that if Labour looked like he was leading the argument, telling people what was good for them, you must do that. He waited for the evidence. He waited for select committee reports. He wanted, you know, it to become like overwhelming that it had to be done. It never quite got to that point. The parliament, it was a free vote in parliament, a conscience issue. So I think there is something about when you're doing these public health things, to be cautious about it. There was always a worry that Tessa Jowd sounded too much of a nanny state type politician when she was public health minister. And the question is, is Rishi Sunak, it's not that the policies are wrong, because I actually agree with them, but the tone can be jarring to lots of people who think, well, look, I know you're right, but I should make my decisions about how I live my life rather than you telling me what to do. That's all true. But the history of these things is you should just sort of get on and do them and then they become accepted, like the smoking ban. You know, when I introduced... But you said in New Zealand it's gone backwards. So it has been reversed in New Zealand because of kind of complicated coalition politics there. But when I introduced... But it hadn't the, become entrenched then. It hadn't, become, become, it hadn't started. And of course, this is a policy. By banning smoking altogether, this is a policy that's going to take 50, 70 years to come into effect. But when I introduced a sugar tax in the 2016 budget, there's a tax on sugary Coca-Cola and the like, all of our political advisors in Downing Street, said to David and me, this is, you're mad, you're going to be taxing Coca-Cola. You've, you know, you've, it was only a couple of years ago you got slated for taxing pasties, you know. So, but it was absolutely the right thing. I looked at all the evidence. It was so overwhelmingly the right thing to do. I have to say, brilliant in that 
was Jamie Oliver because he turned out he was a massive advocate of the sugar tax. And he, I phoned him up before the budget was delivered, literally on budget. I said, look, I'm going to announce this, Jamie. I really need your help. He was on a bike. He drove off to College Green, which is the space outside the House Commons where all the TV cameras are. It drove out, off? No, he was on a that bike. That sounds like David Cameron on his bike. <laughs> I mean, he didn't drive off. He cycled off. No, no, it was a motorbike. A motorbike? Right, yeah. Not sure what that does for your health, anyway. But <laughs> he took off his helmet and he stood there on College Green after I delivered the budget and was the biggest advocate of the sugar tax. And no one, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss all said they might get rid of it. That's never happened. And I would say, you know, if you're looking to fill some of the gap that's going to turn up in the public finances as people smoke less and drink less, they pay less of the taxes on those things, why not look at expanding the sugar tax to some of the drinks that aren't covered, like sugary milkshakes? You see, I didn't want to touch that because it was quite complicated with things like baby formula to get it right. I thought it was better to get the tax off the ground. and then, Or even like sugary, you know, you can reduce sugar content to things like cakes and pastries that you buy in shops. But, no, but that's the point. You didn't introduce a ban. You didn't say, I know better than you, I'm going to stop you. You said there will be a tax if drinks are very sugary. And what happened was the industry responded and they produced drinks which were less sugary. And everybody thought, actually, I quite like these less sugary drinks. I'm not sure there's a lot of tax revenue, but you changed behaviour, but you gave people a choice. And the difference is that on the smoking, it's not a choice, it's a ban. And I wonder whether there's a difference there between allowing and incentivizing behavioural change as opposed to just saying absolute no. So don't be de haut en bas, as the French would say, which is my rather clumsy link. That was a great link, actually. <laughs> to, uh, to our next topic, which I think is really interesting, which is what's been going on in France. And you have just come back from hobnobbing with the French elite. So we're going to find out what uh, they told you. So you're back from scoffing your escargot, nice glass of Chablis, probably. I know this gathering you at, it doesn't happen in the Holiday Inn on the Peripherique. This happens at the Trianon Palace in Versailles with the Enarch. The Enarch are the, the French elite who've been to the École Nationale d'Administration, Enarch. These are the people who run France. What do we discover? How is France being run and who's going to run it next? Look, you're trying hard, but I'm sorry, George, it wasn't Davos. This was not the global elite. We didn't feel like we were the cream of the cream when it came to... However, unlike in creme Britain... Creme de la creme, I think, creme, is the French for that. I know, but I was just talking in English. <laughs> I was not being you know, a globalist. I was just <laughs> speaking in British. Creme de la creme. The brilliant organiser on the British side, Roland Rudd, is, he says, getting a better hotel for the Brits next year when they host. But it won't be as good as the Trianon Palace Hotel, which is where the Versailles Agreement was signed with... Um, Lloyd George and Clemenceau and Woodrow Wilson. The agreement which people said led to the Second World War. So you sort of feel history is all around you. I've been going to this event for about 25 years and different periods of, you know, there's times when the Brits are obsessed with the Euro or later with Brexit. There was one year when the French had a right of centre president and a left of centre prime minister, cohabitation it's called, and they were so at each other's throats. We were just observers. I was there when um, Sarkozy did his speech before he ran for president in English. Big radical speech he made. It was kind of amazing to see. This, though, was the first meeting I've been to for quite a lot of years where actually 
the French were more worried, they were more down, more concerned about the future than the Brits. I mean, the British have been in, in, in trauma for quite a few years, as you'd imagine, since, since Brexit. And I turned to the person I was sitting next to to, to ask why. Uh, it was Sophie Pedder from The Economist, who's the Paris correspondent. I said, is this because, you know, what's happening in the economy? Is it the, the Germans being weaker? Is it the prospect of Donald Trump? Is it, you know, the, the rise of the National Front? And she said, it's actually an era ending, that you've had this period since uh, Macron was elected president, the en marche period, and that ends because he can't run again. And I thought about what she said. And it is true that in, in America, you can elect a president but Congress and the wider constitution carries on. And in Britain, you can have the death of the monarch, you can have a change of prime minister, but it doesn't fundamentally change the political system. Whereas France has such a centralised political system, centralised in the elected president, who is also like the head of state, that when that changes, a lot and changes, very uncertain. And at the moment, that could be a change because it won't be Macron to Marine Le Pen at the next election. And, and I think for the French, this is just very traumatic. So I, I wonder how realistic a prospect that is. I mean, she definitely will get into the final ballot, we would say now, I mean, in as much as you can predict anything in politics. And the French system is quite, you know, you can get quite a low percentage to get yourself into the final ballot, but then it's a runoff between her and whoever emerges on the centre-left or the centre-right. Probably Edouard Philippe is the person people think is most likely used to be Prime Minister of France. Under. And he's popular. So, And he's a kind of conservative. But it's true to say that the kind of Macron... I'm, I'm a very impressed generally by Macron as a president. And, you know, I dealt with him. He was my opposite number or one of my opposite numbers when I was Chancellor because he was economy minister in France. We used to have good uh, boozy dinners in Paris at uh, various brasseries. But... I would say... But not Terminus Nord. Not Terminus Nord. No, no, no. Terminus um, Nord or Nord? So was I being English then? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I was... Don't worry, I only spent 15 years learning French at school. <laughs> Doesn't mean I can, I can speak it. But um, the government does seem completely kind of stuck at the moment. In, in, you know, they're trying to do some sensible pension reform, increase the pension age a bit. Still way below what it is in Britain and other advanced democracies. You know, they're trying to do some marginal reforms to immigration, which, you know, is to address the same problem that all of these European countries are wrestling with. And, you know, again, the kind of streets are blockaded, the routes into Paris have been closed by the French farmers, you know, the new prime minister who was everyone's great hope about a week or two ago is suddenly on the back foot. I mean, is it becoming a kind of ungovernable system? I mean, do you get, is that what the French are worried about, that no one can achieve change in France? And as a result, maybe they will reach for the far right for someone to kind of deliver them from this impasse? Well, look, I mentioned that big reforming Sarkozy speech in the mid-2000s. He talked about pension reform and labour market reform and couldn't really deliver it. And Macron has put in place much bigger reforms. Good, but that's also partly why he's uh, unpopular. The challenge this year is they have the European elections coming up. The leader of the National Front, the Front National campaign, is a 28-year-old called Jordan Bardella, who's very, very popular in the opinion polls, very charismatic. The appointment of the young prime minister, a bit of a reaction to, to that. And I think what's really interesting about um, French politics is that Le Pen's not just strong in the south, in the places where the immigration issue has been very big, but also in the more northern industrial heartlands to the north 
of Paris, where um, there's been a lot of economic change and a lot of challenge. It used to be like the heartlands of the left in France. Right? Kind of the French Red Wall. But I think there's also a political point here, which is that what Macron did was he ran against politics. He ran against the mainstream parties of the left and the right. He was, you know, politics is failing, politics is broken, I'm going to come in and sort it out. And the trouble is that once you're there, it's harder to govern as the anti-politics candidate. The danger is that you have to make choices and then you become unpopular on all sides. I think it's just really dangerous to be the populist outsider candidate because Macron shows doesn't last when you're in government. And the danger is you leave the political system overall weakened as a result. And as I said, I just felt at this meeting on the outskirts of Paris, the French were more worried about the future than they've been for a long time. Well, the, I wasn't able to travel to France for a period when I was Chancellor because I made a joke about Sarkozy's height, which uh, did I, you? Got, I then got a message from the French government that I, I wasn't welcome for at least 12 months. How did this happen? I was uh, giving a speech and there was, I approached the lectern and there was a little box for a shorter person to give the speech from, to stand on. And it had been revealed a few days earlier that Sarkozy also used this thing. And so I picked up the box in front of this audience in Britain and removed it and said, I don't need the Sarkozy box. And I got a message from the French embassy that the Chancellor Exchequer wouldn't be welcome in Paris for another 12 months. So um, anyway, now, of course, I do love going to France, but... I always think it's very odd. There's, France is probably the country most similar to us. Same size, same size economy, very similar kind of history of, uh, you know, an imperial history of all the complications that brings. And yet we're like sort of two brothers who can't get on. Anyway, it's, it's a, totally true. Whereas the Germans have such a different attitude to Europe and to politics and to democracy. And yet it's always been easier to work with Germany. This is a, an irony. I sat next to Sarkozy once at a dinner in Washington. It was at the IMF. Gordon was chairing. I was in the British seat. Sarkozy was sitting next to me. There was this whole conversation going on about international reform. And Sarkozy turned to me and said, this is ridiculous. And I thought he was referring to the arguments for the Brazilians or the Americans. And he looked down at his plate and he said, they expect us to eat this. And actually, he was far more upset with the IMF food than he was with the debates which were going on. There we are. Sudak doesn't have these problems. If it was a Monday. We've come to the end of the show. Don't worry, we'll be back with our bonus questions episode on Monday, ex-ministers' questions. Yes, we're going to be covering lots of interesting topics. We've had questions on Sunday trading laws, Chatham House disasters, and whether Matt Hancock is... It says here whether Matt Hancock is really as bad as everyone thinks he is, but I don't think he's bad. And we found someone else in the country who agrees with me, and we're going to hear from them as well. After much searching, you found somebody no. in the country who agrees. We've also got a question from one of your little birdies anonymously, so we're going to be answering that. Remember, you can get in touch by emailing questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. See you Monday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.